guys, do me a favor and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to talk about something mysterious today. You might not be wondering. You might be guessing what I'm talking about today. Um, so today, what I want to do is I want to talk about the, the, the armor of God. Um, I have a couple more. Uh, I have one more message planned for next week before we get into our series, uh, uh, End Times Prophecies in the Church. That's going to start in two weeks. Um, but I have a couple just things that kind of came to my mind over the summer. Um, but what I want to do today is I want to start today's message with an old Chinese proverb. You may have heard this, you may not have heard this, but I said, a student said to his master, you teach me to fight, but you talk about peace. How do you reconcile the two? And the master replied, it's better to be a warrior in the garden than a gardener in a war. And there's a lot of truth to this. There's a tremendous amount of truth to that statement. Those who do not know or are incapable of defending themselves are easy to control. They typically don't win fights, right? Within Christianity, we are continually taught that violence is not our way. And we need to know that. Violence is not our way. Jesus never punched anybody out, okay? Just in case you were wondering. He did drive some people out of the church with a whip, but uh, that's okay. They were just a little sore on the way out. We're not training to fight a war, but we talk about spiritual warfare. We know that there is an angel army... And throughout scripture, we've even met some of its commanders. Yet the gospel is known as the gospel of peace. But a couple weeks ago, I gave you a message on, uh, and we talked a little bit about the Hebrew term peace, shalom, and how it does not mean the absence of conflict or everyone just getting along. Peace in Hebrew means the conclusion of battle and the peace that comes afterwards. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It's the result of successful conflict. So we have peace because God has won the battle that we could not fight. Make sense? So we're constantly in this tug of war between fighting but not fighting. It's, it's, it's strange because we, you know, we all love a good fight. <laughs> you know, you push someone in the right direction and, and they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna fight. But at the same time, we're not really supposed to. God knows that in this world we're going to have troubles and that we need to know how to fight in a way that protects us, protects those we love, and protects the integrity of the gospel message that we have been entrusted with. Can I say that again? We need to know how to fight, but we need to know how to fight in a way that protects us, protects those we love, and protects the gospel message that we have been entrusted with. If we fight in a way that denigrates the gospel message, then we are fighting incorrectly. And we are not fighting God's way. That message is the most important thing that we have. Now, in all the teachings throughout Scripture on spiritual warfare and the weapons that we have, there are none that are more easily understandable, in my opinion, than the armor of God. Paul's teaching in the book, in the letter to the church in Ephesus, in chapter 6, when he compares the weapons of our warfare with the armor-worn by a Roman soldier. <clears throat> and it's pretty awesome the way he does it. So I'm going to read to you this section in, in Ephesians, starting in verse 10 to verse 20. Let's see what Paul gives us here. He says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand the wiles of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of, uh, excuse me, of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So he's talking about our battle being not physical, but spiritual. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So it stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, <coughs> excuse me, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. will get to tell you what that means here in a minute. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, excuse me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So he's comparing the armor of God to the armor of a Roman soldier and reminding us that our battle, it doesn't take place here. What God gives us to fight the battle here is as good as anything that any soldier in any army around the world carries. That's what he's trying to tell you. You are more prepared for, for the battle that can be, that is unseen than any soldier fighting a battle that can be seen. If we just take seriously the tools that God gives us. So I'm going to do two things today. I'm going to compare the armor of God to the way a first century soldier would have looked at it. A lot of times we just look at the spiritual application and that's great. We're going to do that second, but there is a very real militaristic application to all of these pieces that every soldier in the first century would be aware of. But today we're just, we're, we're, we're not unaware. We're just ignorant of it because it's not a way we fight anymore. We don't run at each other across the field with pointy objects. It's just not how war is done anymore. So we don't think along these lines. So during the first century, the Roman army was the most feared military force in the known world. The most feared military force. They were unbelievably capable. The Roman Empire still, at its heyday, the largest single empire ever to occupy uh, the, the world. They were unbelievably successful in their military campaigns. Now, one of the reasons they were so successful is because on the battlefield, their weapons and their tactics were basically unbeatable. Basically unbeatable until technology caught up to them. The Roman armor was not just an asset on the field. It was technologically superior to most other militaries around the world. I mean, they really put a lot of thought into what they did. Each piece supported the other. And as a whole, it made the soldier extremely formidable. How many of you want to go into battle with a big, weak soldier? You know, can't lift the sword. I'm here for you. Trips over the shield, you know. No one wants to go into battle with those guys. You want to go in battle with like the big burly guys who picks their teeth with the sword. You know. And uses their shield as a pillow. Like those are the guys you want to go into battle with during this time. And that's what a lot of the Roman, the Roman military was. It was those, they were, they were what is feared today. And what is feared today are manly men. You know, make men masculine again. That would be awesome. 
be really great. And that's the way they were. So the first thing Paul said was, gird your waist with the belt of truth. Now, the belt was not like a belt like what we think. A belt for a Roman soldier was very thick. It was very heavy. And it supported most of the weight of the rest of the armor. And more importantly, it held the sword. Now, something that we don't think about a lot today is the belt didn't just take care of all of that. It also covered a lot of the sensitive areas of your body. These are not part of your outfit. You'd wear a tunic underneath it. These were typically thick leather, and they were adorned with little metal pieces all the way down because it was the only thing guarding the front of you. There wasn't a lot of stuff guarding behind you because, as any soldier knows, um, the battles in front of you, not behind you, move forward, not backwards, right? If you're moving backwards, if you turn your back on the enemy, they're winning. (laughs) That's the idea. So you push forward. So the, the, the belt wasn't just there just to hold things together. It was so thick that it would force you into an upright position. It would force you to stand. You know, it's kind of like those mom jeans from the 80s. You couldn't bend. You, you know what I'm talking about? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about uh, because guys wear the same jeans, like the waist was somewhere up here. It held you together. Now, the interesting thing, if you've ever done any weightlifting, if you put a weight belt on, One of the things that it does is it holds you together, makes it very, very difficult for you to get something like a hernia, but it also, in a weird way, makes it easier to breathe. Some people think they're restrictive, but they don't. They actually hold you together. It's very hard to get the wind knocked out of you when you're wearing one of these correctly. Now, as a soldier, that's very important, you know? Soldier on the battlefield going, (laughs) I really hurt. I'll stab you in a minute. Just give me a second. No one wants to fight with that guy. Okay? So gird your waist with the belt of truth. The second one was put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, the breastplate protected the vital organs of any soldier. During this particular time, any wound to your torso was always, um, almost always going to be a, a big laceration or a pierce which was almost always fatal. A wound to the torso was almost always fatal because if the wound didn't get you, the infection would. Because remember, back then, to help you get over a sickness, they would put leeches on you to try to pull out the sickness. Or they would cut you again to let some of the blood out, hoping the bad blood would go. Not what I would consider modern medical technology. So this part of your body was extremely important to protect. And the armor and the, with the, that the Romans came up with, this flexible armor, was amazing. A lot of the rest of the world, it was just a solid plate. Now imagine this. Wrap yourself in a piece of aluminum and now try to go fight. Not helpful. Now, I, um, I'm not where I thought about wearing this, but I, when I... Anyone ever seen Marvin the Martian? Anyone ever ever seen that? Yeah, I looked worse. I, I looked worse. Um, uh, so it, it, so it's yeah, it's not made for someone my size. So when it comes to this type of armor, when you're when you're in it, the chest plate was very heavy. I mean, you got to think this is this is a stage reproduction. It's actually made out of out of metal, but it's not made out of like combat ready metal. This isn't as thick as it would have been. The chest plate could weigh up to 20 pounds. You think about that laying on the front of you. 
That may not sound like a lot of weight. It's a lot of weight when you're running, when you're marching up, when you're carrying a big shield, a spear, a sword, and people are stabbing you. That's a lot of weight to carry. So it took a tremendous amount of practice and preparation to be able to handle the the breastplate in real life. Isn't that interesting? How you got to work on the thing that protects the most vital parts of you. Funny how that how that happens, right? But it was the most uh, most significant part of their personal protection against the enemy. I hope you heard that. The breastplate of righteousness was the most significant part of the soldier's personal protection. We'll get to the spiritual side of that in a minute. So it said, uh, and it says, shod your feet with the gospel of peace. Now, more specifically, it says the readiness of the gospel, the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, interestingly enough, anyone who's ever been in, in military or around military, uh, if you've studied military history at all, one of the things you know is one of the weakest parts of a military force is their feet. It's their feet. It's weird. During World War II, trench foot took more guys off the line than almost anything else, other than obviously direct injuries. Uh, because if you can't walk, you can't fight. If you can't stand, you can't fight. So you have to be ready to move at a moment's notice. Any military force knows that when you're on your way to combat or when you're preparing for combat, you may be ordered to move with just a couple of minutes notice. That means you have to be ready to go to march an unknown amount of distance. And remember, they didn't get on C-130s and fly across the, the, the nation. They picked up all their stuff, put it on their back, and they typically walked somewhere from Rome to England. Anyone interested in doing that, carrying all of your material with you? No, no one's interested in doing that. But this is what they did. Now, the Romans had amazing footwear for the time. I mean, they had arch support in their shoes. It was unbelievable how well they took care of their soldiers in this way because they knew if you can't walk, you can't fight. Could you imagine standing on the field of battle? You got a big sword, you you know, a big shield, you got a big sword, you got a chest plate on, you're ready to go, you got no shoes, and you're looking at a battlefield filled with little tiny sharp rocks. You're not excited about that fight because you're about to go meet your ancestors. That's essentially what's about to happen. Feet are very important, and the feet have to be ready to move in service of your king. That was the point. As a soldier, you had to be ready to move in the service of the one who rules over you. Okay? Now, the shield of faith. In the Roman army, the shield was not like that round gladiator shield that, you, that you're used to seeing. The shield was way bigger than this. It was about two times the size of what I'm holding here. But in order to get a real reproduction, I wasn't going to spend that much money. Um, it's, it's, it's big. On a normal-sized guy, uh, well, normal-sized guy, on a normal-sized guy in Rome fighting in their military, which is J, basically, uh, it would come up to about mid-chest. And it did that on purpose. It was huge. It was painted this color, but it wasn't necessarily steel on the top. It would be covered with leather, and the leather would be painted. And so what would happen, it says, and you can, with the shield of faith, you can extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. That is a military term. So what would happen is before what, what would happen is the, mili- the Roman military would get into lines. They called them phalanx, and they would line up five or six hundred soldiers, and there'd be three or four lines deep. And they would be walking towards you with their shield like this, and they'd step the shield forward, and they'd move forward. And they'd step the shield forward and they'd move forward. And they'd lay, a, they'd lay a spear down on top of the shield. And it would be sticking out like this. Now, I want you to imagine a bunch of guys in metal carrying a giant shield going. And they're marching towards you. 
pointing little sticks at you with sharp metal pointy things on the end of them. And they're grunting at the same time. Every military force has like a battle march kind of, kind of a thing. It's just the way it was. The army does it when they're running and it's, it's imagine, and they're going, and moving forward, and, and the other guys on the other side are going, I want to go home. <laughs> Hail Caesar, whatever I got to do, I don't want to do this. And they're moving this thing forward. But the shield wasn't just for approaching combat. See, the fiery darts of the enemy that's referenced, the leather coating on the front of the shield would be dipped in water before the battle. And the shield was made this way so that as they marched, now you've got to imagine a couple hundred guys in line with this, they would put the shield down when the enemy would release a volley of arrows. Now, the volley of arrows was meant to go over the main line and into the, into the forest on the back, and they, they didn't care what they hit as long as they hit anything. And the shields would interlock Do you hear me? Shields would interlock. The first guy would put it on the ground. The second guy would put it over his head and lock it in front. The third guy would put it over his head and lock it in the back. And they would form this armored bubble to go over all the soldiers. And the arrows would hit the wet leather and go out. Because a lot of times the arrows were on fire. The purpose of the arrows was to get the military to break rank. To get scared people to run and you'd create holes in the line. That was the point. The point of the fiery darts of the enemy is to get the military to not work together and to give in to fear. But the shield was specifically designed to keep the military together as a unified force marching forward. Isn't that an amazing coincidence that Paul would use this as faith? It's also the only part of our defensive weaponry that has to be lifted. The shield was the only part of defensive weaponry that had to be lifted and carried. It wasn't on you. You had to hold it. And when it was time to use it, you had to put it in place. You had to spend time learning how to use it. Or it became a hindrance rather than an asset. Okay, the the, um, next one is the helmet of salvation. To a soldier, the, hem- the helmet obviously protected their head, right? It's the reason why they call them brain buckets, right? So the idea is you get hit in the head hard enough, you can't see, hear, <laughs> or talk for a couple of seconds. You don't know, really know where you are, and you're vulnerable. So the, the helmet, even though it looks metal, it's got leather wrapped up inside of it, and it kept the metal away from your head just a little bit. So you could get hit pretty hard. And unless that sword or whatever was hitting you could actually go through the metal, which was very rare, you were relatively protected. Now, that's an obvious application. The other application that we forget is from a soldier's standpoint, every military in the world has one unique thing about them. Their head covering. Every military in the world has a different head covering. Germans during World War II had a very pronounced helmet. Very easy to tell if it, was a, if it was a German or an allied. Very easy because of the shape of their helmet. All throughout military history, the helmet identified the allegiance of the soldier. You could, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> awesome. You could tell who they were fighting for by what was on their head. 
It identified them. It identified them and their allegiance. And on the battlefield, you knew if they were an ally to be trusted or an enemy to be fought. Because on the battlefield, it's very interesting. You either have an enemy or an ally. They're either for you or against you. And the helmet identified which. Now, if the helmet fell off and they dropped the, the shield, everyone had a breastplate. And when you're covered in mud and blood, they can all look the same. But your helmet would let everyone around you know if you were friend or foe. Isn't that interesting? The last one, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now this thing, I put this on the wrong side. Last time I got this out, Larry was sitting up front. He got very scared uh, because I just sort of waved it around haphazardly. The sword of the spirit is our only offensive weapon. And it is the only offensive, specifically offensive weapon that a soldier carried. This was what the soldiers spent the bulk of their time with. They would practice with these things. They'd be wooden versions of them. When you got good enough, you practiced with the, wheel, with the real thing because a wooden sword was considerably lighter than a metal one. And when you're talking about learning battle moves and how to handle a sword on the battlefield, you needed to know the weight. You had to be able to handle this thing well. And the Roman swords were very unique uh, in history because they were single-handed. You had to have guys with very strong wrists to wield these things because you're not just going, eh, These things were handled very well. In college, um, for a couple of, for a year or so, I was in a sword, a sword fighting club. Uh, and I use the word club very, you know, cause that's basically what we did to each other. There's ways of making practice swords where you don't have to hold back. You just beat the snot out of each other. I loved it. Loved it. Especially when I got better. <laughs> Learning to use a sword for a soldier was imminently important. And honestly, any offensive weapon, even in modern warfare, is incredibly important. Because if you don't know how to use your offensive weapons, you're not only a damage to yourself, you're a damage to your own, you're a danger to your own soldiers. You know, you get the guy who's on the firing range for the first time going, Sergeant, this is pretty nice! Pointing a gun at everyone and everyone's freaking out because that's live ammunition. You have to know how to handle these things. And imagine you're, on a, you're in a battlefield and you are shoulder to shoulder, back to front sometimes, in a tangled mess of men and mud and blood. And it's, it's, you're just trying to survive. And people are wielding swords and spears and throwing stuff at you. If you don't know how to use this thing, you can hurt as many of your own men as anybody else. Isn't it interesting that the, com- the comparison to the word of God, a soldier that doesn't know how to handle the word of God is as dangerous to their own as they are to the enemy. Isn't that interesting? A sword is also very unforgiving. Once you've used it, you've used it. Apologizing doesn't help. Kind of like when you mishandle the word of God and you send someone into a spiritual tailspin I'm sorry, doesn't cut it. Should have never picked it up to begin with. It is the responsibility of a soldier to know how to handle their sword in both peacetimes and in conflict. 
and to have it with them at the ready at all times. Soldier without their weapon isn't a lot of good. An unarmed soldier doesn't have a whole lot they can do other than be a target. All right, let's look at some of the spiritual breakdowns of the same thing. As powerful as the military applications can be, Paul was using a metaphor for a spiritual application. We've got to be aware of that. So you think about this. When Paul says, gird your waist, gird your waist with the truth, if you look at John 17, 17 through 19, it says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. How do you, sanctif- how do you gird your waist with the truth? You gird your waist with the truth by learning the word of God. Because the word of God is our only truth. It's not kind of truth. It's our only truth. Truth is the foundation of everything we do, but it's not just any truth. Today, people are taught that truth is subjective. See, there's no absolute truth about something. There's no absolute truth about morality or about gender or about ethics or about abortion. There's only your truth. The word of God says this differently. The word of God says, don't trust yourself. Don't trust your truth. Trust my truth because your heart is wicked. So if you want to know truth, you learn it from me. That's what scripture is telling us. So truth comes from one place and one place alone. That is the word of God. If we get it anywhere else, if we get it anywhere else, we're going into battle with no pants. Anyone interested in that one? No, we're not. Truth is not subjective and truth is not debatable. Truth is what God says it is. Now, secondly, Paul tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Proverbs eleven three through 8 says, The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the uh, perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless will direct his way aright, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the unfaithful will be caught by their lust. The wicked man dies, his expectations will perish, and the hope of the unjust perishes. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and it comes to the wicked instead. Righteousness is a big deal. Righteousness is the thing that protects the most vulnerable parts of you. Righteousness is what keeps us from being spiritually crippled. And by that, I mean when you have a knowledge of God and you have a sin that you refuse to confess. It basically means you've bound a wound that will never heal because you've not let God take care of it. A lot of the issues in the church, you see marriages that have trouble. No one will ever do anything about it. You have men that are hip deep in pornography. They don't want to talk about it. You have women who are hip deep in pornography. They don't want to talk about it. You have kids who are doing all kinds of things they shouldn't do. No one wants to talk about it. And we have removed our breastplate and we've taken hits. And those hits, if they don't take us down initially, the infection will. Because it's hit the most sensitive part of us. It's the righteousness of God that protects us in our daily life and in our walks. It's the righteousness of God. It's a choice to put it on. 
None of this stuff is worn by accident. It's all worn on purpose. And we have to decide that this is what we want to do. Or we can go through our life crippled. But walking in righteousness is more than just piety. You ask yourself this question, are your actions consistent with your Christian testimony? The language you choose to use, the movies you choose to watch, your drinking habits. I only get drunk at home. Good for you. That's like saying I only murder people in my backyard. (laughs) You know, I don't want anyone to see. (laughs) Your use of the Bible. And the list goes on. Think of the damage that can be done when we choose to not live in righteousness. Think of the damage that gets done in the church by people who don't walk in righteousness. The damage done by false teachers preaching one thing and living another. That's never happened, right? If you've ever heard the, the, uh, uh, the saying, don't drink the Kool-Aid... That came from the church, folks. Came from the church. And it came from the church not protecting its own. That's what it came from. How about this? False teachers lying about miracles, preaching a twisted man-made message that keeps people from finding the true gospel. They're not walking in righteousness. They're crippling other people. One of the reasons Christians are not used by God more often... And in more significant ways, I want you to think about this. One of the reasons why Christians are not used by God in more significant ways, it's because he knows you're not ready. You've come to the battle in your underwear holding a sword you don't know how to use. And that's all you got. I got my Bible. I got 10 verses to tell people why they're going to hell. But there's nothing else that has armored you up for the battle. So God knows for your own protection, he can't use you in those ways. See, we have to start with the foundation of truth and we have to be willing to put on the covering of righteousness. Each piece lends itself to the next. Shod your feet with the readiness of the gospel. Romans 10, 14 through 15 says, how then shall they call on him who they have not believed and how shall they believe on him who they have not heard and how shall they hear without a preacher And how shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings and good things. Remember, peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the result of victory in the conflict. The fight is over. The battle is won. And in our case, the price has been paid. So when we bring the gospel of peace to other people, when we're ready to bring the gospel of peace to other people, we're not worried about upsetting them with the truth because the truth is our foundation. And we're not worried about irritating with righteousness because righteousness is what protects me. The truth and the righteousness is what allows me to stand up in the moment where I can bring the gospel to somebody else because I'm healthy. So the question that we have to ask is, are we at that point where we're ready at a moment's notice? To serve the king. Are we ready at a moment's notice to serve the king with the gospel of peace? Or are we stumbling around trying to figure out where our shoes are? 
or asking somebody else to go fight the battle for us. One of the big problems in the church today is that too many Christians have relegated the task of bringing the gospel of peace to the world to professional ministers and the pulpits of their local church. I'm a professional minister. This is the pulpit of the local church. And I want to tell you very plainly, this is not the place where your family and friends and coworkers are going to get saved. They might. But if you're counting on it happening here, you got one big problem to overcome first. They ain't here. They ain't here. You know why they're not here? Because you have not brought them. Here we go. You see, my job, if I look through the Bible, my, my job is actually very simple. To teach and train the body for the work of the ministry. What's the work of the ministry? Isn't it to take the gospel of peace into the world? Isn't that the work of the ministry? So I am to teach you, to train you, to help you understand the word of God and the gospel of peace well enough so that you can take it out into the world to the people who are there, who God has put in your path, so that you may influence them. Because chances are they're going to listen to you much faster than they're going to listen to me. When people come to church, they already know what I'm going to do. I'm a professional minister. Let me give you an idea. If you're driving down the road, do a 90 and a 30, and there's lights come up behind you, and all of a sudden, this man in an outfit with a gun and a badge comes up to your window, wraps on your door, on your window, you already know the first question coming out of their mouth. License, registration, please. Or how about this? Do you know why I pulled you over? Sonic the Hedgehog. No, officer, I don't. Wrong answer. Just want to point that out. Wrong answer. Because you know. Liar. (laughs) You see, when a professional approaches you, you already know what's going to happen. And to someone who doesn't want anything to do with God, when I approach them, they already know what my goal is. As opposed to them asking you something very innocuous like, you seem to be changed. Something bright about you. What's going on in your life? If you needed an open door, (laughs) that's it. Hello. It doesn't get more open than that. But too often people do that and they go, thanks, trust in Jesus, come to church. Ah!" We have to be ready. See, it's not shod, it's not be read, it's not shod your feet with the gospel, it shod your feet with the readiness, the preparedness of the gospel. If you're not ready, the only person to blame for that is yourself. Take charge of your faith. Make it on purpose. Are you able to bring the gospel of peace? And by that, I'm not meaning the gospel of signs and wonders and healings. I'm not talking about the gospel of prosperity or name it and claim it. I'm not talking about the prosper, the gospel of you are a little God. I'm talking about the gospel, the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone. That's the gospel of peace. If you don't know what I just said, you need to come to some of our Bible studies. Mainly the first principle classes that'll be starting up. Uh, new classes will be starting up soon. 
How about this one? Take up the shield of faith. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by the elders, for by it, the elders obtained good testimony. By faith, we understood that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. We trust in the things of God by faith. We don't have to see it. We just need to know it and trust it. Just like the Roman shield, faith is something that must be carried. It won't follow you like a puppy. You can't attach it to your wrist. You have to carry it with you on purpose. And you have to learn how to use it in peace and in war. In times of no issues and in times of arguments. Now, the cool thing is it works the same thing when Paul says you can extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. Now, remember, the fiery darts of the enemy were things that were shot in chaos. They were lobbed over the main force with one specific goal, to divide the military, to get people to break ranks of unity. When a military force would open up, they would open up a hole in their line. The opposite force knew that's the weak spot. That's where we attack. That's why the soldiers are constantly told, stand your ground, stand your ground. There's a guy yelling it. It's amazing what they would do during those days because the soldiers knew it it was beat into their head. If I leave, I may die being here, but if I leave, they might die. I may be the thing that keeps them alive and they may be the thing that keeps me alive. So I have to stand my ground by faith and when the fiery darts of the enemy would come over the shield is lifted they're interlocked because we're together they hit they go out we keep moving it's an amazing picture the funny thing is this little thing in the middle it's called a boss i like that you get close enough to hit him with the boss Sometimes it was even pointy. Now you think about the fiery darts of the enemy. What might that look like today? Fiery darts of the enemy might look like things like this. Drinking Mountain Dew is a sin. How many of you heard that? I've been told that. Have a mountain in your hand. (gasps) You sinner. Can't believe you. Andrew's like, no, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's gasoline for the body. Right? How many of you heard something like this? Wearing makeup is a sin. Harlot. How dare you look attractive for your husband? Or just for yourself? (laughs) Remember, ladies, you don't have to look nice for him. You can look nice for you, too. Just want to point that out. How about this one? Modern music is a sin. Right? Rock and roll is the devil's music. Uh, n- n- no, I, I don't, I don't think so. You know, <clears throat> I can't see Jesus listening to Ozzy, but you know, I think he would be fine listening to some, you know, some, some, some nice rock. I, I don't see the problem there. I think Jesus would like skillet, you know, you think it'd be fine, right? How about this one? Drums are sin. Drums are sin. I mean, they're all through the old Testament. The Israelites used them all the time, but drums are sin. It's that Rhythm. Huh? How about this one? Um, Long hair and a man is sin. 
I've heard both of these. Long hair and a man of sin, short hair and a man of sin. What? Just curious. What about no hair on a man? I'm just curious. Right, Shannon? It's like... <laughs> My light just shines brighter than some other people's. I'm just, just saying. It's mostly reflection. Or how about this one? If you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. These are the fiery darts of the enemies. These are things that Christians do to one another that cause us to break ranks and divide over nothing. Meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. Not related to salvation. It's got nothing to do with the battle at hand. But we get up in our own camps and we divide because I just can't fight with someone who, I can't serve in a church with someone who would wear jeans. With someone who drinks Mountain Dew. I just, I, I just, I just can't believe it. You don't drink Mountain Dew. You use the bottles for chew. That's what you use them for. <laughs> right? Some of you are just, your stomach's turning right now. You're like, oh, God. This is the stupid things that the enemy does. He knows they're meaningless, and he knows they're not even aimed. But he lobs them over the main force, hoping to create some kind of chaos in the body to weaken the battlefield. Sometimes you can take people out of the battle before they even have a chance to fight. And that's what they're for. The helmet of salvation, 1 Thessalonians 5. It says, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith <coughs> and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we would live together with him. Therefore, comfort one another and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And we urge you, brethren, listen to this. We're talking about identification. Recognize those who labor among you. Recognize those who labor among you. Know who's on your side. And are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace. Among yourselves. Know who, who works with you. And give them honor where honor is due. Be thankful for those who are fighting alongside you. Now I'm only, only going to make one observation here. <coughs> if your allegiance is not clear. Through the example of your life. If it is not clear whose side you are on. Or who you're fighting for. You really need to reevaluate your decision-making paradigm. See, salvation isn't just an entrance into heaven. Salvation is what identifies you as God's. And salvation should change you. Salvation should make you his. Salvation should make your life rather predictable in the eyes of the unsaved. If it's not, you really need to rethink what you're doing. Because God's not playing when he says you will stand before him in judgment and you will either know him or not. When scripture tells us to work out our, our, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it's not because God's a big meanie. It's because he's serious about his word. He's not kidding about the standards in his word. They're not options. His sovereignty is above all. And we are to come under that. What we do in service of the Lord has no value unless it comes out of relationship. 
We don't serve the God, we don't serve God to hopefully get close to him. We get close to God and then we serve him because of it. Last one, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I'm not going to say a whole lot here, but I'm going to read you two sections of scripture and then we're going to close. First one is probably known by everyone here. That's 2 Timothy 2.15. It says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. A worker who does not need to be ashamed. Basically, what he's talking about is a soldier who knows how to handle the sword. If you're on a battlefield and you stab the guy in front of you, are you ashamed? <laughs> Sorry! Ooh, that looks like it hurt. He's going to be mad when he wakes up. Today, not only is the church filled with people who have 10 Bibles and understand none of them, Today, we not only have teachers and preachers that spend their days butchering the message of hope, turning it into a message of greed, twisting it into pagan mysticism with Christian names. We also have people in pulpits and in churches telling their congregation that the Bible is not the word of God. You've heard me preach on this many times. You've got preachers over and over again, well-known preachers, who are telling you that the Bible is not the word of God. Andy Stanley, Bill Johnson, Todd White, Todd Bentley, Kenneth Copeland, Jen Hatmaker, Paula White. These are all people who will tell you the Bible is about God, but it is not the word of God. But we buy their books, we buy their music, we go to their conferences, we play their worship music in church. We don't do it here, but we used to. And people applaud them at their conferences. What a mighty man of God they are as they're denying the foundation of our faith. That's a horrifying thing. These are workers who should be ashamed at the way they handle the word of God. The last one is 2 Timothy three thirteen through chapter 4, verse 5. Oh, there we go says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and, and, and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. You fulfill your ministry. Just in case you missed it, every element of the armor of God points back to the word of God. Every element. The belt of truth, pretty obvious. Truth is only found in God's word. Righteousness is a life that is in line with God's word. So without God's word, you can't live in righteousness. 
The gospel is salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone, according to scripture alone. Salvation is the, is the identity of those following Christ, those who are living according to the word of God, following in the path of righteousness. And the sword of the spirit is being grounded so firmly in the understanding of the truth of God's word that you can not only defend your faith, but you can take down false arguments. You can not only defend who you are, you can go on the offensive. But you've got to know what this thing is. You've got to spend time with it. Looks scary, and it should, because it can do as much damage, it can do as much evil as it can good, if it's used wrong. And I think that's the point. This is supposed to be intimidating, because the Bible tells us those who teach others how to use it are judged more harshly. That's why I draw such a hard line on the authority of God's word. If I've got to stand before God and give an account for what I teach you, I ain't playing. It's, it is not worth it. This is not a toy. It's a tool. It's a tool of security. It's a tool of conquest. It's a tool of restoration. It's a tool of peace. The military, who knows how to handle this the most, doesn't have to go to battle. They just maintain the peace because it's there. Because they know when to use it and when not. Too many of us have this hanging on our wall and it never comes off. We need to learn how to use this thing. The Word of God is the single most important tool in the life of a Christian. It's one of the things we spend the least amount of time doing. Here's a challenge for you over the next week. For two days, pick two nights. I'd like you to do one of two things. Spend as much time reading your Bible as you are watching TV. Well, I only watch one program. Great. Was that 45 minutes or an hour? How many of you spend an hour a day in the Bible? How many of you spend an hour a day in the Word of God? The one tool that we have to go on the offensive is typically the one tool we spend the least amount of time with. That's a problem. This is the weapon of our warfare. It's all spiritual. It's all grounded in one thing, 